Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. Georgia, you were in the courtroom, one of only two, I believe, uh, pool reporters uh, at the centerpiece of this uh, sentencing. So, so fill us in. Yeah, it was a very intense afternoon, and there were a few things that surprised me. Uh, I was a bit surprised to see uh, Derek Chauvin's parents, at least it was his mother and and potentially his stepfather, in the courtroom along with his ex-wife and her two sons. And then, of course, uh, Floyd's family was there, uh, and we were uncertain whether or not Chauvin was actually going to Uh, step up to the microphone and say anything. I'm sure his attorney encouraged him to do it, to offer some type of remorse to the family uh, so that the judge could take that into consideration before issuing the sentence. And, you know, it was a little weird. Um, We heard Chauvin offer his condolences. And then there was this other remark that a lot of people are trying to decipher where he said, Uh, He couldn't say much because of legal matters, which potentially is tied to the uh, federal investigation that's ongoing. I uh, do want to give my condolences to the Floyd family. Um, There's going to be some other information in the future that would be of interest. And uh, I hope things will give you some, some peace of mind. And so I don't know if that's the sentencing information or other information in the trial. Uh, yeah, so that, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. It was very complexing. I, I was listening to it um, or surrounded by a group of, of young people. And when they got to that part, they all, all their faces scrunched up as well, um, as well as as you know, um, some feelings of wondering what does 22 and a half years, which was the sentence um, ultimately that was delivered, what does that mean in the context of what could have been? Um, We know that the state was asking for 30, I believe, and the minimum or the uh, maximum without aggravating factors was somewhere around 20, um, and he got 22 and a half. And so I'm hearing a lot of messages of it's not justice. Even Attorney uh, General Ellis, Ellison said, you know, it's it's not justice, but it's accountability. Um, you know, what are you hearing from folks um, since you were there? Well, I am hearing that uh, folks outside of the courthouse were pretty disappointed that it wasn't a stiffer sentence. Uh, there's other people who... Uh, are are glad that you know he got more time than uh, Muhammad Noor, who was convicted for the death of Justine Damon. And so, yeah, it. I, I think people just have mixed emotions, and clearly, at the end of the day, we've heard from the family that true justice would be George Floyd still being here, and so any measure of man-made, constructed justice is never going to fill that void. You know, I was was shocked again to listen to um, George Floyd's daughter um, because uh, there were four four community input um, uh, testimonies that happened. Um, And while hearing from George Floyd's siblings um, definitely was a thing, hearing his daughter um, just about broke me. Um, and I, I, hearing that, I definitely expected for there to be a stiffer sentence, but I also heard that there was a, a call to, to, and some really, really, uh, strong efforts to be, to get the sentencing just right, uh, on the part of both the judge and and communities. Can you, can you, what has that been like seeing folks try to really dial in at the sweet spot of this? Well, I think the other moment during sentencing that was very emotional. Uh, and I, I could see this going a lot of different ways, people expressing their frustration and other people who have different values and beliefs uh, really 
uh, feeling like their voice was represented when Chauvin's mother stood up and gave her statement. And I thought it was interesting that she centered so much of his career in her statement and said that there were two moments in her her life that were, you know, her happiest. It was the day he was born and it was the day that she pinned his police badge on him. And it was interesting to hear her center that message knowing even that uh, defense uh, attorney Nelson had talked about the cultural implications, the political implications, the racial divide, all of these different things that he said they tried to weed out, but ultimately still were at the center of this trial. And we know that uh, they, even in jury selection, were asking people about their affiliations to either uh, Black Lives Matter or the Thin Blue Line. And so for her to uh, point to, to that moment of pinning his police badge on him as one of her happiest moments, it felt like to some degree she was expressing her her allegiance and, and somewhat of a dog. It felt a little bit like a dog whistle. You know, it, it, you had made mention earlier, um, you know, in our recordings around the minimization that's happening. And it definitely felt uh, minimizing to, to what had been done. I, I thought there would have been um, much more um, remorse. I've been in a situation of, of watching family members and friends um, who had been sentenced, you know, give their speak on their own behalf uh, and try to show some kind of remorse for uh, the victim when it has happened um, in order to uh, try to have that be a part of, of the sentencing. Now, we, I don't know what he wrote to the judge, but I didn't get a sense of any of that um, that maneuvering, which makes me makes me think that their <laughs> attention is focused directly on trying to appeal. I, and I could see that. And, and I think the fact that he only offered his condolences and did not take the opportunity to express any accountability for his actions is a clear indication that he's absolutely going to try to appeal. Georgia, thank you so much for that recap. We'll, we'll head back to our previously recorded uh, Bearing Witness podcast episode. Georgia, we know you'll keep us, uh, uh, continue to keep us posted. Thank you for your work, um, especially if you want to find out more. Make sure you go to racialreckoningmn.org. Imprisonment is increasingly used as a strategy of deflection of the underlying social problems, racism, poverty, unemployment, lack of education, and so on. Angela Davis, freedom is a constant struggle. As we look through this week, we have many of the battles and struggles that we see on many different levels actually moving towards our um, policy battles. Now, we've been talking about this coming space for a while, and now we are in a space where we see not just policy fights happening, but some of the wraparound issues that are coming up um, for us on this, um, on this journey on many levels. We have um, the sentencing of Derek Chauvin, of course. We have the other trials that are coming on online. We have the restrictions to voting rights that are now happening. As we've talked about this battle back and forth of what's going to be the response to a season that seemed like it was pushing towards greater levels of consciousness, understanding, we are now seeing the fault lines and the predictable patterns of resistance to this kind of change in discourse, even all the way to legislative action telling us what we can and cannot teach our children. There's a lot going on in this space. Um, so, Ms. Georgia, I'm curious, as you think through this week and the activities that are happening around us, what have you been seeing um, in this nexus as we are in this arc of racial justice? I have continued to see this through line the interconnectedness of so many different issues from the uh, pushback for uh, voting rights. Uh, we saw Republicans actually vote against an act that would allow for voting to be easier. Just, just that simple. Uh, we also saw 
a lot of individuals across the country come forward and say that critical race theory should not be taught in schools. And simultaneously, one of our own treasures, one of our own gems here in uh, the Twin Cities, he is a, a New York Times bestselling author, Resma Menikin, participated in a five-part series on race with the Washington Post. It also centered voices of other scholars. And that series was ripped to shreds. You had people on Fox News, Ben Shapiro, who really line by line went through and tore apart everything that that project stood for. And uh, in watching all of this play out, you know, just kind of scrolling on my timeline and and seeing that uh, these national figures are not only attacking other scholars, but attacking one of our own here, who is known in our community as a healer, as someone who helps process trauma, who builds awareness about historical trauma, and, and to be painted out as such a, a negative figure. And um, and then I think also what um, disappointed me was the Washington Post has yet to really respond to all of these different accusations about this project. And uh, they're the one who commissioned it. And uh, just for clarity, if you're not familiar with this five-part series, it's called The New Normal. And it it's inclusive. So, I mean, you have white people who are talking about race and their experience in understanding their own privilege and their own white identity. And then you have uh, Asian and indigenous experts who are at the table. So it's a very inclusive conversation. And I think it's the type of conversation that we should be having when we, we talk about where we are in this post-pandemic society, where we are in this post-George Floyd world, where are we and how much progress have we really made? And if we're going to attack uh, people coming together to have a formalized conversation around race and in the same breath also attack critical race theory and in the same breath also attack people like Brother Kaepernick and also attack the people who went out and just protested. How, where I'm at this week, Anthony, is asking myself if we're really going to have a racial reckoning How are we going to have a racial reckoning when every avenue to push forth change for for a more equitable nation is met with so much resistance? And and it's the resistance is is patterned. And we've talked about this, right? Like it's not... The the, the tropes and and the talking points centered around that are not new. They keep coming up every time there is a challenging of our what a quote unquote American mythos, and this is the thing that gets difficult because we we we've established already that there are healthy critiques in our communities of all of our political parties and all of these policies and decisions that have happened. Um, you know, we we owe a lot of mass incarcerative language to democratic policy. We also owe a lot of um, the delay on on enshrining and protecting the rights uh, of marginalized communities on tactics that were used by um, these predictable patterns of resistance. When um, uh, anti-lynching laws were being brought forward, the filibuster was used to stall and eliminate them. And these were laws that would have protected people um, and, and, and brought in uh, federal oversight in a way to stop people from being murdered and massacred. We 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 see that um, in response to uh, the opening of rights to even women voting, we saw predictable patterns of resistance uh, that said, "Why are we changing who we are, and why are we, you know, trying to make this nation seem like we're bad?" Um, in the face of 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 enshrining the right to vote to everybody. Um, and so these resistance and predictable patterns were around for, for suffrage movement. They were there. They've been around for civil rights movement. They're being now done around here around the protection of voting rights and even 
to address full and true histories. Um, and so what do you do when the um, advocacy for your own historical story being a part of the full story of America is resisted in both policy level and in our back and forth? It, it, it leaves... It, it, it leaves a question. It leaves a huge question mark about what do we do with that um, when your own existence is what is, is being called a political football. Your own existence is um, and, 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 and want to speak truth <laughs> to history. I mean, that's, that's the other piece about this, right? We're, we're talking about facts being brought forward into light and being resisted. Um, one of the things that that you called my attention to um, was the response um, to a question about the teaching of critical race theory by a general at a defense committee hearing, um, and uh, was he was given time to respond, and he said very clearly, "I want this. This is General uh, Milley um, in response to questioning from from a, a senator said." Um, so what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused it? I want to find that out. And he preceded that by saying, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. And so even as you're in your description of the project with, with Brother Minikim, we have our own generals having to defend seeking truth at our highest levels. Yeah, everybody is having to defend seeking truth. And what is the, how how do we measure the health of our nation, right? And, and I think that, that it is very, it is an indicator of how unhealthy our nation has become when we can't even agree on truth. <laughs> and can't even agree on truth. This this is only going to continue to grow and problem is, is a problematic piece. Um, the more and more we move into our, our information space, which is the reason why bodies of scholarly work like critical race theory, like women's studies, like social studies, we forget that our own practice of teaching social studies as a discipline was founded by a group of scholars getting together and say, okay, what are the essential skills and conversations and ideas and, and the theories and understanding that undergird them for teaching us how social interactions happen? This is how we have gotten all of our disciplines that we use and utilize to grow on educationally. And now, <laughs> as we continue to do that, folks who haven't spent any time actually, you know, um, our producer, Lee Lee, and I were driving up to the uh, Malax earlier this week, and we were listening to a radio show that was tackling this issue with well-known scholars that, at the table. And a caller called in, and one referred to, um, referred to our history of racism as people being picked on, and everybody's picked on, so why are we focusing on one group when everybody's been picked on at some point to the point where the, even the reporter or the journalist who was... Um, facilitating said, well, I don't think picked on is sufficient to discuss 250 years of chattel slavery, but okay. Um, well, more than, more than that, more than 250 years. But also this unwillingness to, um, and this lack of understanding about what this discipline even is, right? Which is seeking truth, seeking to tell full and whole stories. Um, and so there's folks calling in, uh, still, still trying to, to attack seeking truth with very little understanding about what critical race theory is in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And when, you know, you think about what is at stake, why, and ask yourself, why is there so much resistance? I mean, and I, I think I have started to imagine even of these things that, uh, in addition to critical race theory, that have been deemed as being problematic and racist and all, right? Like, even uh, with George Floyd, right? Uh, ben Shapiro, when he was attacking Brother Resma and the project that he participated in uh, for a Washington Post, he also pointed to uh, George Floyd, his murder, and saying there was no evidence mm -hmm. of this being racially motivated. And I took a pause and I thought about that. And I started to think, was there any evidence 
that the Duluth lynchings were racially motivated? Was there any evidence that any of the lynchings that have happened were racially motivated? And so I think that our country has a tendency to be uh, dismissive and has a habit of gaslighting Black people's experiences and minimizing uh, the trauma that we have to endure in order to exist in this country. And so when I, I hear all of this rhetoric around critical race theory, let's be clear. For the last, I don't know how many decades, if not centuries, we've been teaching our children in public schools that Christopher Columbus discovered America. Should we keep teaching them that? Something that we know is not true? And let's just say critical race theory is allowed to be taught in schools. What is it that could transpire? What is it that could happen if a generation of youth is taught critical race theory? What could happen? Who will they grow up to be in 20 years? What will their workplaces look like? How will they practice inclusion? It, <laughs> I, I love that. And, and, but one of the things that needs to be a part of this conversation <laughs> is that critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Right? Critical race theory is not a thing. It's not a subject you teach. It's a collection of scholars who are asking the question, how does race systemically in, interact with our daily lived experience? Uh, it's not something, it's not about finding what somebody's in, in somebody's heart. It's not about, um, it's really not even about interpersonal things. It's about understanding how systems work and thinking critically. Asking the question, how did we get here racially? How did and, we get here? And fundamentally, when you have that understanding, it empowers you to dismantle that system. And so if you're equipping the next generation with those resources, those tools, or you're imploding them, empowering them to ask the questions, to find the solutions, to dismantle it, if our, then now, now we have to agree that we're at a collective place where we don't all agree that that should be dismantled. Otherwise, why are you resisting it being taught in schools. Well, it, and you you actually did what a lot of folks have been doing in response to this, um, you know, and I think well, our, our guest today is going to speak a little bit uh, about that and continue to, 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 to do that. Um, but you did what um, cuts right through because one of the things is this debate around critical race theory is not real. You mentioned gaslighting. This is a perfect example of gaslighting. Is this even the fact that critical race theory is being discussed? Um, nobody discussed critical race theory until there was a um, campaign with talking points to try to use it and put it front and center, um, you know, to, you know, in this current moment. Even people who, who are studied in critical race theory in, in, in the, um, the, points in the tenets that brought up of one of which you brought up, and that is the tendency of dominant cultures to minimize the experience of marginalized peoples. Um, you know, it, it, people who have learned from it don't even refer to it in critical race theory because it's just a body of good thinking and critical thinking about our history and our policies and our practices to say, here's how we got here so that we can unravel, we can undo uh, the negative effects, negative effects that are happening. One of the things that we see over and over again by white folks who went through, um, you know, what? Uh, let me back up. In the same news report that I was referring, referring to earlier, um, they were, uh, one of the scholars was recounting the fact she's the Dean of Education, and uh, Dean Emeritus edu in Education at Howard University. She gives a story about working with Rhodes Scholars. These are creme de la creme scholars from across the nation who study at the highest levels. And as they began to go through the kind of history 101 portion, began went from being very excited to really frustrated with the fact that they there was at the scholars at the top of their game had no clue that these missing elements of history even happened there was a a, a point 
um, in a session that I was doing in which we were looking at everyday historical stories that we just get wrong with a guy named James Lowen, a wonderful historian, wrote the book Lies. My teacher told me Lies Across America. Um, And his whole big thing is history doesn't have to be boring. So in telling a full story of the Statue of Liberty, folks are shocked to understand that the Statue of Liberty itself was an abolitionist monument, crowdsourced abolitionist monument. Most of us were taught that the Statue of Liberty was a gift from France that centers around our immigration. Um, No, (laughs) Uh, Laboulet, a French abolitionist and local abolitionist, hired Bertoldi to to originate this gift from France, but it was supposed to be a monument to us ceasing being a slaveholding society. Mm. It has been lost and stripped away in our American myth because we don't want to talk about it. Even so much that the original design that had chains in the left hand and the light of freedom in the right Mm. hand are now hidden under at the feet of Lady Liberty under the garments. This is wow. how we have been taught to engage in racial discourse. And on pulling the veil back out of that, right? It's like taking the blind justice statue and like removing one eye is uncomfortable. And that's what this is trying to do. And this is the predictable pattern that I see in this for all yeah. of the work that's happening. Now, even the legislation that's coming in is they are predictable patterns of uh, that are in response to truth telling, and I have to say that it, it's it's exacerbating the frustrations that the world, the U, the United States is changing. It is browning. It is becoming uh, the folks who had these negative experiences are becoming more of the population, and it speaks very similarly to the feelings that were exhibited during Reconstruction and during the Civil War. The fear that somehow when folks of color in this particular uh, space, when black folks get a greater degree of freedom, somehow there's going to be a retributive act um, because, of the, because of that history. That, I think, is at the root of this fear. And it's being gaslit and used to distract. Yeah. That is the predictable pattern that I see here. Um, even when it speaks to our uh, system of mass incarceration, um, and I think our guest, you know, who I met, uh, will tell the story about how we how we um, kind of got together. Uh, but I met our guest in Alabama at the lynching memorial at, in Birmingham, um, or excuse me, in Montgomery recently. And we were able to have a conversation and learn even deeper about how even our incarceration system carries these things through. We have to remember that when slave labor ended, there needed to be a different workforce. And all of a sudden, we start to see prison populations and vagrancy laws and other, um, you know, uh, gotcha laws go all across the South to re-incarcerate, to, to re-in-bondage, uh, particularly people of color. Um, and then they were able to, be, their labor was able to be farmed out. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that as we bring in our guests to help deepen this conversation. So, Miss Georgia, uh, this past week, um, especially um, in in the vein of your coverage of the lynchings in Duluth um, and these anniversaries that have been come, come recently, I took my family on a trip down south, um, and it just so happened to coincide with when the with the men of Ujama Place, under the leadership of Monique Linder, in this trip. Um, we're on a civil rights research experience now. Me and Miss Linder have been on this experience with youth several years, and um, we met up at the lynching memorial um, and got to hear from one of the lawyers under Brian Stevenson at the Equal Justice Initiative. And there were some fascinating pieces of learning. And so I'm really excited to bring in Monique Linder, who um, is a, is no stranger to media herself, um, and and she can tell you all kinds of stories. But Ms. Linder, I'm curious uh, to your reactions to the conversation that you just heard me and Ms. Georgia have. Wow. First, uh, I want to thank you for bringing me on uh, Bearing Witness. Um, The conversation was just incredible, so deep, um, impactful, uh, a great conversation. Um, I'm excited to have that talk based on what you and I have experienced together through this civil rights research discovery. But, you know, just want to acknowledge Georgia Fort because in the past year, what you have brought forth in the conversations around race, equality, uh, justice has been so important to our community, which I call this ground zero in terms of um, the fight that's ahead of us 
we've we're still fighting on the ground, but the bigger fight is ahead of us. And I'm looking forward and uh, digging into that uh, with you today. I appreciate that so so very much, and I'm really excited to hear more about uh, the trip and the experience you two had. Um, Anthony was sharing that he was traveling and kind of some of the context and. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about what happened. I know that the uh, museum that is in Montgomery is very, very powerful. Oh, yes, yes. You know, in, in terms of talking about bearing witness, I want to give you a little bit more co- in context into what, what was going on. So a couple of days before the Ujamaa men arrived, um, I had the opportunity to bear witness to something so extraordinary. It was a meeting that took place between Dr. Josie Johnson, our local uh, queen Mm. of our village, um, and Brian Stevenson. Mm. And what I heard in that conversation was so powerful because, of course, um, you know, I enjoyed watching the two together because... If you've listened to any of Brian Stevens's conversation, he always talks about that relationship that he had with Rosa Parks and how he would just sit and listen to her. Um, just he wanted to just be there to watch the black women in, in Montgomery um, just talk. He would just want to just sit and listen. So watching the two of them together took me back to that. But there's a couple of really critical nuggets in that meeting. He talked about the period that he hopes we will enter into. He talked about two periods in the civil rights movement. 1965 is where he wants to see us, not 1968, where there was a lot of anxiety and emotions and not a lot took place or we didn't accomplish a lot out of that. So I, I, I had to go back and look at, okay, so what took place in 1955? Um, you know, that's in, in August 28th, of course, was when we had the tragic lynching of Emmett Till. Um, so you, you, you look at the things that took place, but that was August and December 1st was when Rosa Parks just said enough is enough. And she decided to take action by not getting up from her seat on the bus. Um, But there was other things, too. So he talked about the Civil Rights Act. And I had to go back and kind of put together and look at this timeline. What I discovered out of that timeline was since the Civil Rights Act was passed, we have only, if you count the years, we have only been free for 57 years. So think about in terms of your life at your age. We have really only been free for 57 years. So when I listen to you talk about those challenges, um, you know, we went through 400 years, so 1619. Then we had that chattel, that period, 244 years actually of chattel slavery before Abe Lincoln passed the uh, proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation, which we know who didn't get the memo. We know Texas, <laughs> the, the folks in Galveston, Texas, two and a half years later, found out that they were free. So we then we enter the period of segregation. That's where all the lynchings and just the horrible brutality, the black codes, everything was taking place in there, which was supposed to be more like a reconstruction period, but it wasn't. So we get to 1964, and that's when the Civil Rights Bill was passed. So finally, there's a law that protects us, that we can then move on. So from 1964 to today, that's 57 years. So not long. We're still going through and having lynching. So when you talk about that memorial to lynching in Montgomery and you're looking at our history timeline, where do we go? You mentioned some really important uh, uh, things, the critical race theory, which I agree with Anthony. That's gaslighting. (laughs) I, I don't know. That's the best word that I can think to use for for that and all of the media frenzy when you talk about media now Georgia you and I have both talked about uh, 
what media, how media perpetuates negative stereotypes and what goes on. That, that's a media, whole media campaign there, gaslighting. So, so I'm going to leave that there because I just tend to just look at that and say, let's not waste so much time. Let's keep focused on, on the prize. And then you talked about where are we going? How do we have racial reckoning when there's all of this fighting and disagreeing? And how do we do that? We have to keep fighting. We're going to have to keep fighting. And I keep listening to people like, uh, um, you know, our ancestors, Martin Luther King and, and nonviolence methodologies. We're going to have to stay focused on what we're looking for because we're not going to convince a group of people that hold so tightly to white supremacy that all of a sudden we should love each other. And it's just we've got to just keep focusing on the critical things like educating our children, um, economic stability in our communities. We are going to have to really stay focused. And like Brian Stevenson said in the meeting with Dr. Johnson was we have to look at the root of the problem and then come up with a solution. So we can't just all of a sudden start jumping into it and, and, and um, you know, something happens and then we just jump right into it. We have to really take a step back and look at the root and then come up with the strategy. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot about how allies can support and help advance uh, solutions, how allies can use their social capital and their influence. I was having a conversation uh, with somewhat of a colleague and she was taken aback by, especially when you start talking about media and the role that media plays in perpetuating systematic racism and upholding some of these narratives. And, you know, she's like, well, you just need an extra set of eyes. They're like, no, actually. (laughs) You know, the thing about uh, narrative um, is a lot of times narrative gets twisted um, by people who have implicit bias, right? Or... um, claim to be ignorant. And, and, and I, I feel like there's so many folks who are racist that are hiding behind this veil. And I was like trying to articulate to her the way that I was seeing this play out and perpetuate in so many newsrooms. And finally, I just asked her, I said, have you ever met a person who, who's racist, like who just came out and said, yeah, I'm racist? How how many people do you know who just come out and say that they're racist? Well, not too many people will admit that they are Hi. racist, right? My name is Karen. I'm racist. I mean, you just don't you don't meet people who claim to be racist. You you learn to understand they're racist based on their behaviors. And you you do your best to educate them but at some point you just have to just like I said you have to stay focused um edu- trying to educate a person who does not believe that they're racist to try to you know to, to to all you can do with that person is educate them on facts and so it's it's such an important conversation they have to have but you can recognize if you're in the room you can feel the energy from people who are racist and who may not have your best interests. And I've heard uh, Rosma Manikin say many times, survey the room when you walk into the room. Because you, that's the first thing you need to, to, to know um, is and feel that energy and feel it. And sometimes it might take leaving the room, getting out of that space, because it's not, you don't want to take in all of that negative energy. You know, I, I think there's an important distinction that, that, that you all are bringing forward here because, you know, in, in critical racial discourse, right, um, one of the things that happens as a predictable pattern in that discourse is 
is it gets pulled into a um, conversation about what is in somebody's heart. Um, and this is a tiresome trope that people of color often are trying to, to, to work around uh, because, I'm sorry, we didn't march and die and bleed to not be called out our names. We, we can handle that. We're big kids, right? We're, <laughs> that's not what people are. It's, it's, it is the systemic pieces that don't require intention or malice. This is one of the hardest things to swallow when you start to understand how systemic racist um, behavior works. It doesn't require a political affiliation. It doesn't require you to be a good or bad person. It requires a perpetuation of systemic things and ignoring or being silent about them is part of that systemic space. And so what often will derail a conversation is, try, is somebody trying to make it about what is in my heart or what is in somebody's heart. And, and, and I know for me as a black male, the moment I, that conversation gets pulled into that pantheon, then all of the points in the work that I'm trying to bring onto the table immediately become irrelevant to that conversation because I don't care about what's in your heart. I care about the behaviors. I care about the data. I care about the patterns. I care about the systemic spaces. It'd be great to know that you don't like me or you were scared of me because of the color of my skin, but, but that takes relationship and we don't always have the luxury of that. But what we do have is data. What we do have, as you said earlier, is facts. Let's be about the facts um, because there are um, critiques. Even And this is the, this is the kiki-haha. I'm borrowing that from a friend of mine who works around critical consciousness development. Here's a kiki-haha. There are part tenets of critical race theory that critique liberalism, that critique the folks who show up and say the quote-unquote right words, but their behavior and policy and actions below that surface tell a very different story, right? Um, you know, there's there's a conversation we have all the time, uh, you know, about being in the North and being in the South, being in a place of quiet racism and in-your-face racism, at least in the in-your-face stuff, I know where we stand. And we actually see data kind of bear that out. And so, you know, I I, I, I hear the conversation. And even when we were, were in Montgomery, what, what blew my mind, we didn't get into a conversation about what was in people's hearts, the lawyers that you had speak to the group, which I thought were fascinating and did a great job, they were telling us stories about real policy, real practice. Um, the idea that that in this particular part of the country, uh, it's not the public defender system that you come to know. In Minnesota, a public defender system is connected to governmental, uh, it's the county, right? You have You have public authority, right? In some places, you have a right to a public defender, but it doesn't specify that that defender has to be a public servant. It, you know, in some cases, we have a system where private lawyers are who are contacted and they don't even have to practice defense law. You have access to an attorney, not necessarily a defender, and you get a certain amount of money with which to do your defense. Right? It, it blew my mind. And in that process, there are so many people on death row who can't even afford a proper defense. And then we wonder why so many people are executed. And then we find out years later that they had nothing to do with the crime. So, uh, Ms. Linda, you brought that information to a lot of us. And I'm just curious about some of the patterns that you did that in during that trip that you were able to pull out to kind of suss out the systemic nature of what we're talking about. That, wow, that, it, that was it. That part of the trip, and I can tell you that when we went a year or two years ago before the pandemic, mm -hmm. we had students. There was such a different dynamic having men out of the criminal justice system on this trip. So you had Ujamaa men, and I'll tell you, the first experience, so when we, we arrived in Montgomery um, the first day, we just did some museum tours, but when we went to Selma to see Miss Afrier, I can't even tell you the impact that that experience, the Middle Passage and the uh, Willie Lynch experience had on these men. Think of men who come in, they're clean, you know how the men are about their tennis shoes and they have on the white tennis shoes and and she, you know how she gets them off the bus, right? Just to be clear, Miss Afrier is somebody who heads up the Civil Rights Museum in Selma and does a lot of experiential and healing work around telling this story in Selma, Alabama. 
That's right. And um, her uh, place is um, the Center for Humanity in, in Selma. And so the very first experience, men who have experienced trauma and poverty and have been in the criminal justice system. So they're being told to get off the bus and to stand in this line and they're all wearing white tennis shoes and you're going to be walking through mud and dirt. So the first experience with them was traumatic, okay? Because they're thinking about their shoes going to get dirty and they haven't even gotten into it yet. So you see the men taking off their shoes and holding them. Okay, that was the first thing, okay? Well, I think that's an important, one important contextual piece is just Ujama, we're, we're referencing with Ujama Place. And, you know, one of the things that we have to do is that in community, we all know what Ujama Place is and we have to explain it to all the folks who don't want to pay attention to us. So Ujama Place <laughs> is, is an organization who <laughs> that provides holistic transformation for young African-American men experiencing inequity at the intersection of race and poverty. That comes from their mission. To explain that to folks, you know, that's the legalese that you have to put out there for folks who don't know that Ujama Place takes men who need uh, to get stability and gives them stability, whether they've been incarcerated, they're just experiencing poverty. So these are our young men who are growing their fatherhood, their skills and all these things. So I really bring that up because- Thank you for bringing that into context because yeah. and, and adding to that in all transparency, I direct Ujamaa's media and communications as well right. as their data and these experiential trips. So this was part of the civil rights research experience comes out of Ujamaanomics, which is a critical cultural financial literacy program um, that the men have to take um, while they're going through the theory of transformation programming. So it's a good, thank you for, for doing that, Anthony. Well, and the reason I needed felt the need is because as you were describing them holding their shoes, we're talking about folks who, you know, getting a new pair of shoes is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to underscore the fact that we're talking about folks who, who can't afford to, to be willy-nilly with stuff. So this isn't, this isn't that stereotypical trope about black men in shoes. These are folks who are protecting an investment for real. And, and the thought of them going through the mud and walking through to get to the riverfront where she does the Willie Lynch experience. So you have to imagine it starts out like that, but it gets, it gets worse. It becomes very traumatic for them. And to the point of one young man, actually he was one of the older men that were part of the trip, but he decided at that point that he couldn't go through it. And he goes and gets back on the bus. That he couldn't be called the N-word that much as, you know, as he heard. And he said that he just, he couldn't go through it. So it was very traumatic. But the, on the other side, after that experience, during the, the healing part of it, um, after the middle passage experience, the healing that takes place there, mm -hmm. the men were bawling, crying so hard because they were finally able to let go of all of that trauma that they had built up in them. They felt they were at a place where they felt that they could show their real feelings. And I mean, they wailed and bawled for a long time. And so Anthony, I thank you for introducing me to that because you've inspired me to expand that knowledge and to start bringing the men on that trip who most of them haven't even been on an airplane. So to be able to travel uh, there and part of that experiential uh, experience, but to witness that through them and then when we finished that trip and went to Tuskegee and went to all the other places, when we landed in Minneapolis, we immediately, the very next morning, went to Duluth to honor the victims of the Duluth lynching. And so it was really a full experience, which we turned into a film. I released that film on Juneteenth. Um, and... To date, what, it's had over 13,000 views. So it's the content. When you talk about the content that you release, Georgia, and these conversations, that's the way we get it out in the community. And that's how we yes. educate. Because we are not going to force people 
to believe something that they don't want to believe. But we know because they like to hide behind. <laughs> they like to hide behind the, uh, the racial stereotypes and beliefs. They will watch the content. So if we keep releasing this content and we keep putting the message, because that's what media has been doing for many, many years, putting yeah. out false material. We're putting yeah. out truth. We're telling the story of our history and we're, we're putting out the truth through cultural content. And that's my contrib contribution to the movement. If I can keep telling these stories and keep putting out this information and it educates people, then that's, that's my contribution to the movement. You know, um, one of the, one of the um, important pieces that you talk about is that experientially, um, you know, and, and, George, I, I've seen you try to tackle this in a couple of different ways too. Um, is is we aren't one. This is interracial, right? This 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 is not. Um, what makes this not gaslighting is the fact that there were people from many different racial and ethnic backgrounds who are all experiencing and addressing this real truth together, not in the same way that folks who resist this kind of uh, historical truth telling uh, will often. One of the patterns that we see is is uh, members of that marginalized community, a small subset will be paraded out to back up an argument or a claim. Um, we see that happen, you know, well, we heard from this group of folks of of color over here that this that they believe their critical race theories is a bad thing too. Um, but when you ask for numbers to back up that data, um, we never cross the threshold. Uh, we, uh, uh, somebody, I think it was Representative Clyburn, um, you know, said uh, it doesn't even pass the 1% test, the 1% of the population test. The vast majority of folks um, are, are, are not only on board with this level of truth telling, but willing to engage. I think when we have the same conversation, uh, there were, when, whenever I've gone to the lynching memorial, and I've taken several groups for, on the civil rights research experience over the last six years, seven years, there is always a multiracial group of folks who are there witnessing and confronting this history and dealing with it. And many of them recount that they wish that they could have been exposed to this earlier because by the time they ex they exposed to it as adults, um, or 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 as later a student, older students, um, this gulf of incredulity and frustration about not having been told this, they feel gaslit. They feel like somebody pulled the wool over their eyes, and that's not the effect. Uh, to the point you made, uh, your question you raised earlier, Ms. Georgia, about what happens if folks would have been exposed to this earlier. Um, many of the responses to that is for kids who have been exposed to this full truth earlier and the full experiences earlier, they actually make it into college and they don't feel gaslit. And they actually um, feel much better in, in racial discourse because you can't understand that you weren't there, even though you may benefit, even though you may, we all reap the benefits and privileges of, of some of these things. Um, even though you weren't there, um, if you haven't been exposed to this before, once you do get exposed to this truth, you immediately personalize and internalize it as self-pity, harm, and guilt, and fear, which is what all this, this, this legislation is trying to quote-unquote say that critical race theory does. In actuality, when you don't tell those truths, that's exactly what you feel when you encounter it. Vice, uh, in contrast, kids who have been exposed to ethnic studies uh, as courses graduate higher across all levels. They have far less anxiety around racial discourse. Um, and they don't have any of the guilt, pity, fear, shame spirals that folks are scared of because they've already been exposed to the content and been in conversation with it. And, and, and so they're not applying, they, it, it doesn't hit them in the same way. And so there's this really interesting counterintuitive thing that we do to shoot ourselves in the foot despite our face, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's problematic. The only other piece I'll connect in those dots is one that we learned when we were in Mississippi. Um, I think it was two years ago. It might've been three. It might've been the first one. Um, when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, and we learned about um, policies that were put forward uh, in, for the sake of Jim Crow, um, that actually undid, that destroyed public services and because of the fact that they would have been integrated, there would have been access to black folks to those areas. And so you have towns across this state um, that actually dismantled public uh, amenities 
and reduce the value in the tax base. Swimming pools and community centers. Mm -hmm. They filled Mm -hmm. them with concrete. So, okay, well, nobody will use the pool if we have to integrate. So everything you do, you bring that into context to today. So out of, I had the, uh, in my Juneteenth uh, 2021 film, I had the opportunity to ask Brian uh, Stevenson, when he saw the George Floyd murder, lynching on television, what, what did he feel? What was he thinking? And he said, quite frankly, he wasn't surprised when he saw, saw it. Didn't surprise him. But he said that what he was most excited about was how the young people in Minnesota responded, which then ignited the protests around the world. He said that really filled his heart and gave him energy because he wasn't surprised, which is really sad to hear that when you see something like that, you're not surprised, something that uh, 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 tragic. So we have to rely on our history, rely on our experience, rely on each other and believe in ourselves. And so what is the best way? We can't own their feelings towards us. We have to be a proud people, proud of each other, helping each other, loving each other, and then building our communities. It's about our communities and how how we build them. And we can work together and we can negotiate and we can change policies. All the things that you see that are going on today, it's very positive. So I tend not to dwell on so much negativity and take in so much noise. I tend to really create a strategy and focus on it. I think that's beautiful. And I think that is what uh, more people need to do uh, because when you're constantly exposed and constantly, uh, you know, our timelines are saturated with black death, then the normal does become that you're not surprised because you've seen it so many times. And after you're not surprised and then you see it so many more times after that, you start to become numb. You start to become desensitized. And the last thing that we need our people to do is to lose touch with their humanity. And, you know, um, Sister Wes, I, I heard you just, you know, talking about how we really need to rely on each other and you know, talking to Brian Stevenson about his emotional response to that video. The thing that I have been uh, grappling with as I prepared for the sentencing, right? Preparing to go in for the sentencing, which is like the final chapter of uh, this story, Um, at at least on a global scene. Um, What would have happened if George Floyd didn't go to Cub Foods, what would have happened if he didn't have a counterfeit $20 bill? Where would America be then? With, without, without that chapter, right? Wow. <laughs> One part of the film, and I keep referring to the film because there's a part where Dr. Josie responds to that. She said that after George Floyd was murdered, she had talked to George Floyd. And she said that we are sorry, very sorry to lose you, but what you did for humanity, you ignited the world around fighting for human and civil rights. So that, he did something so incredibly tremendous above everything what he did he gave his life yes we didn't want to see that we didn't want to see him murdered on tv but we saw it we know what we saw you can't tell us that didn't happen because we saw it with our own eyes because that's usually you know when um black men have been murdered and it wasn't televised. We saw it with Philando Castile. We saw it with our own eyes. You can't tell us that we didn't see it. 
We know what happened. So we honor George Floyd for what he did for humanity. We can't bring him back, but we can keep lifting him up in terms of what he did to really save us, to save our people, to to really build a better future for our children and our grandchildren. So um, I just, my heart is just so full of love because we're loving people. We're not a violent people. That's what people don't understand. They make us up in the media. They make us look like we're so violent and dangerous and we're fighting at each other. And our, we have, we are very loving people in our families. We want the same thing for our children that you want for yours. And so we rely on our communities. We take care of one another in our communities, just like you do. We're more alike than we are different. So I appreciate this conversation because it really, it be, you feel emotional having this conversation, but it's really about love at the end of the day. We're gonna keep loving each other, just like we have always done throughout history. The challenges that we face, just think of it. And we're, our ancestors were enslaved, coming on a ship. So many didn't make it, but the survivors that survived that, awful middle passage that came here they didn't even after slavery they they weren't um vindictive and they just wanted to move on to have a great life and we weren't even given that opportunity so we just have to understand that we're always going to have to keep fighting you know, we usually end with asking the question, how are you being you in this moment? But you've given it to us twice in two different ways. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So, so I'll just ask this question before I ask Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? Um, where can we see the film? So it's on YouTube, on OMG Media's uh, YouTube channel. So you can just go there and you'll see it. It's a featured film on, on our YouTube channel. All right. Thank you so much. And we got a dose of how you're being you. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? Continuing to tell stories, work with youth, teaching them how to own their own voice and tell our stories and also uh, partnering with other storytellers in our community to start to build some um, collective um some, some collective pieces that we can share with community of how all of our work as storytellers here in the Twin Cities is really interconnected. Ashe. You know, um, I'm being me right now uh, because we are in the midst of, of summer workshops at Arts Us, the, the center where I'm, I'm a volunteer executive director. And uh, I'm seeing kids do African storytelling, drum, dance, spoken word, step, um, but our drummers, the rhythms of the ancestors are moving and they were requiring us to move. And so getting in tune with that rhythm has been how I've been me in this present moment, just hearing uh, these babies play the call, da, 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 and they start playing these traditional rhythms under the direction of Brother Ahanti Young. And um, it just reinvigorates the soul um, towards what you spoke to, Miss Linder, and that is history bears out and backs up your assertion that we are a loving people. We have all the reasons in the world to resort to real extreme um, uh, insurgency and violence for what has been done and continues to be done. And yet we don't. And yet we don't. Um, and this is the question that even the general <laughs> at the defense committee meeting asked. He said, I want to understand white rage because that is what we actually see perpetrated. We haven't, we haven't been responsible for massacres of cities you know, over, over racial incidents that aren't even true. We haven't been responsible for policies that break up whole communities of white families because we want to dis we disregard them as we build the interstate system. We haven't stormed the capital. And even more so, the demonstrations and protests to make this country better have proven under our leadership to be, and I say our leadership, I mean collectively, those who are on the side of telling true stories, um, 
they've been interracial. There has been a sense of love and song, and we are tearing things down. I mean, if we want to run the historical record, what you have just said about how we show up has borne true for hundreds of years in this country. Our focus is always about making us better through truth-telling, right? And any therapist will tell you the same thing. You don't get healing in therapy sessions by avoiding truth. You actually have to face the truth and get through it in order to gain health. And that's all we're asking for, is to tell that true story. And so I thank you for being here with us. Ms. Monique Linder is the um, CEO. I'm the founder and CEO of OMG Media. So this is a person who, who walks the walk and talks the talk. You are also the first woman of color as a CEO of a company to sponsor a NASCAR, a piece of information that she gave to our scholars that made them start calling her both Auntie Linder and Boss Lady. So (laughs) we always end with our guiding quote, the North Star that guides us to continue our work. So I'm going to kick it over to you, Ms. Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.